Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Whenever folks put together a list of up-and-coming Republicans, it'll always include Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, the youngest member of the U.S. Senate, an Army veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I had a chance to sit down with him the other day to talk about climate change, Russia, health care, and his journey from rural Arkansas to the United States Senate. Senator Tom Cotton, welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. I, uh, in in reading up on you, the thing that uh, one of the things that struck me right away was that um, politicians like to talk. You came that came to you late. You you wrestled as a as a kid in Arkansas, in small town Arkansas, with a with a speech impediment. I did, yeah. So apparently I didn't speak until I was about three years old, uh, which I obviously don't remember, but my sister reminds me of. And I can remember going into elementary school, second or third grade, you know, other kids would go out on the playground and play around in the jungle gym, the monkey bars, and I'd be in class working with a speech therapist from the school, learning how to pronounce words. Yeah, and was this uh, painful for you or... Not in particular. I, I mean, I, I mean, I remember having it and struggling, and sometimes being frustrated. Usually, my parents, uh, who couldn't understand me at the time, um, but I didn't, you know, get mocked or teased on the playground about it. Um, you know, my my mom now likes to joke that you know, look at you know, he, he couldn't talk to us three, and and look at him now. Yeah, no, I I, I think I mentioned to you before that uh, Joe Biden, you know, famously had a very bad stutter, and his mo- and his mother said to him, Joey, those thoughts are just coming so fast they can't get out. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, he overcame. Well, I'm, overcame I'm, that problem. Yeah, mother's love is a great thing, and you know, I see that with my mom and me. But I see it now with my wife, and my well, kids. Talk, talk, talk to me about your folks and about your little town in Arkansas. Yeah, we grew. Up, I grew up in a very rural setting um, in Dardanelle, actually just outside Dardanelle, a small cattle farm. Uh, my parents still live in the so farm. So suburban Dardanelle. <laughs> yeah, suburban Dardanelle, yeah. unincorporated uh, <laughs> county land. You know, my uh, fa- my father's never had a vote for mayor in his life. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a, you know, very um, idyllic upbringing. Um, family you know, there for generations. My father's family had been there. Where'd you know, they since come the late from? late 19th century. Tennessee, most immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother's family had been in eastern Arkansas in a similar community, and they had met at the University of Arkansas. But, you know, I had a grandmother and a great aunt there. Um, and both of those, my great aunt didn't have any children or grandchildren of her own. So she, we were kind of like her children and grandchildren spent summer months with them you know you get on your bike in the morning they could turn you out and be confident you'd make it back safe in the evening and if you did anything wrong during the day that your neighbors or friends or church members or what have you would um would report you back report back to you you can't you figure that out pretty quickly as well and you know my parents are just you know great salt of the earth people you know my father's very all democrats all democrats yeah pretty as pretty much everyone was in those days and to this day there's a lot of counties in arkansas where if you want to vote 
for your county judge or your sheriff or your JP, you have to vote in the Democratic primary. That's that's changing to agree, um, but it's still the case in many counties. Um, that said, they were all very conservative too. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a political family. My father was very civic minded. Um, you know, he coached little league. He helped get lights for the field. He's in the Rotary Club. He's been the voice of Dardanelle Sand Lizard football for thirty years now. But uh, not politically active, no bumper stickers, no yard signs, in part because all politics was Democratic Party primary politics, so it was mostly personality-based. didn't want to offend the other person. Um, so I didn't grow up in a political household, um, a conservative in the sense of like a William F. Buckley conservative mm-hmm. movement household, but it was a very conservative household in the sense of a traditional household. Like I had to go work on the farm from the time I was five. I had to try to earn my own keep, you know, taught, you know, traditional uh, – you know, upbringing about differences between right and wrong and personal responsibility and individual initiative and so forth. But the big uh, uh, ubiquitous political figure in Arkansas during your youth was was Bill Clinton. Yeah, he was. I mean, I, I guess I didn't know that there was something other – someone could be governor other than Bill Clinton until he got elected president. But uh, he was elected attorney general a few months before I was born, then governor about a year after I was born, and except for a two-year period in the early 1980s. He was you know, either governor or president um, you know, for my entire life until I was 24. Um, and again, you know, it, all those races are primarily about – the uh, the primary in those days, uh, but you know he'd come to our home county, Yale County, a lot. He'd be at the Yale County Fair. There's pictures of me and my Arkansas Razorback shirt. When I'm four years old with my sister, uh, uh, with Bill Clinton standing behind us. A much younger Bill he was Clinton, like a predatory politician, though. Yeah, he was re- really great politician. You know, probably one of the best on the campaign trail. Interestingly, uh, you know, I think another great politician came from Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly skilled, gifted campaigner and communicator. They both also had, from Hope, Arkansas, yeah, right? Um, you know, Bill Clinton grew up more uh, in Hot Springs than in Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't sound as good in the campaign right, video. Exactly. Uh, but after about six months uh, of his yeah. life, his I mom still believe in a place called Hot Springs is not as good a speech. Yeah. But, you know, they both grew up in rural Arkansas around, you know, people who work with their hands and work on their feet. You know, uh, Mike Huckabee had the added um, you know, perspective of being a uh, Baptist preacher and having to deal with all the problems that any preacher uh, has to deal with. Uh, but I think that that gave both of them uh, the kind of common touch um, and the feel on the campaign trail um, that made them so successful that helped make Bill Clinton president and came close to making John uh, Mike Huckabee our Republican nominee in 2008. Did you learn anything as a politician from watching those guys? Uh, you know, I, I learned a lot of the things that the point that you've made in your book or in your comments that, you know, when you're in campaigns, you have to speak to the common concerns of the voters. Uh, and at a place like Arkansas, those concerns are making ends meet, being able to pay the bills at the end of the month and put clothes in, on your kids' back and food on their table. Um, oftentimes, especially today, you know, as um, you know, certain communities in New York and Washington and Silicon Valley get more divorced from that common experience, um, people forget about that. They forget that you know an extra ten bucks on the gas bill or the electricity bill, or you know a few extra bucks on taxes makes a big difference. Uh, I mean, and you've you know written about that, you know, in your campaign or healthcare, yeah, with uh, with President Obama. Um, <coughs> just that it's those those, those common basic concerns um, of day to day life really make a difference to most voters. Um, and if you're blessed to not have those concerns the way a lot of people in Washington are, then you can easily. Follow in touch with that. Bill Clinton never did that. So, what what uh, made you, you? You said there was not yours was not a political household. What made you interested in politics, and what 
uh, made you a conservative and a Republican? I mean, conservative you've spoken to, but what? When did you have this awakening uh, that uh, led you to be who you are? So in 1992, I was 15, and I started reading the news. Uh, I don't know if that's because I was in history class finally, and I was just interested in events, or if it's because Bill Clinton was running for office. But you know, I read the Democrat Gazette front page each day that summer and that fall, uh, not just the sports pages. Um, and I was, you know, I, I did, again, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a partisan background and a political view. I was just kind of astonished that my governor was running for president and got elected president and was president. Big and deal in Arkansas. Very big deal. And then in 1993, as I watched his, uh, his first year in office, I realized like, wow, I can't believe my governor is doing these things as president. I must be a Republican. <laughs> Meaning the, the two big things I remember were the tax increases, you know, having campaigned on a middle-class tax cut and especially uh, the battle of Mogadishu uh, after, you know, the Black Hawk down scenario uh, and withdrawing uh, from Mogadishu. You know, I was in a, a junior RTC program at the time, you know, I'd had, you know, both of the, the man who ran that program, the Lieutenant Colonel and the E seven were Vietnam vets as my dad was. Uh, and it was just it was pretty appalling to them and, and for to me, listening to them that you uh, commit troops to such an such an occasion uh, with half measures. Either you go all in or do nothing at all. On the on the tax increases, you uh it's interesting because you're right that people do lose touch and people in San Francisco or New York may not have this, uh, the same concerns that people in Arkansas have about making ends meet and so on. That tax increase that Bill uh, Clinton passed was on people who were making over $200,000 a year. He he walled off those people who you're talking about and who you represent. Why was that so offensive to you? Well, it also, I mean, he campaigned on a middle-class tax cut and didn't deliver on that. And then there were some other parts of that that didn't become law, you know, the famous BTU tax uh, the House voted on, the Senate never did, that just didn't seem very sensible to me at the time. At Again, a, I was 16 years old, so I, did, I didn't have a nuanced yeah. and sophisticated economic, uh, you know, examination of them. Uh, it just didn't seem like the right course of action at the time. Um, the Battle of Mogadishu stuck out more clearly to me, though. I mean, that was simpler, more elemental. Um, and it's remained so, you know, since I've gotten to know some of the people who served in that battle. Your father was a veteran, correct? He was, yeah. So my dad was an infantryman in Vietnam. Um, he uh, got out of college in 1967 when you could roll one deferment into another. Uh, and he'd always thought, I think, he, that he wanted to be uh, a coach, wanted to coach football. Uh, so he became a high school coach and teacher, realized that wasn't his calling after all. After he spent a year dealing with high schoolers. And so he decided in the spring of 1968 uh, that he didn't he didn't want to stay in a job just because it had a deferment, as so many people did back in those days, um, and just he would do his duty. So he decided – first he was going to join the Marine Corps, and then my, my grandfather had been in the Navy in World War II and seen – you know what Marines face then, and threatened to disown him if he joined the Marines, which I, I've never really figured out why that was a effective threat, since he didn't really have any any inheritance to disown him from. <laughs> but uh, he ended up joining the Army instead, uh, and did about two years. So he did you know little less than a year training, and then his one year in Vietnam as an infantryman, and then uh, came back to the United States. Uh, and uh, did, was it always in your mind that? Uh, Obviously, you had an interest in all of this. If, if as a 16-year-old, uh, Mogadishu uh, was something that helped form your political uh, thinking, um, you you went to Harvard and you then went into a law firm and uh, you and then you enlisted. Yeah. 
Was that always in your mind that you wanted to serve? Not, no. That certainly wasn't part of a plan. I joined the. I left my law practice and joined the army uh, because of the nine eleven attacks. Um, but when I was in high school, we had a very uh, popular and big junior ROTC program, and the lieutenant, retired lieutenant colonel and E seven there were both Vietnam veterans. So I certainly learned a lot from them as well. Uh, I think you know they were both appalled by what had happened in Mogadishu uh, that we you know committed to half measures uh, and as opposed to just saying this is not our fight or going all in on it. Um, but um, my father, um, you know, would talk a lot about Vietnam, especially when we were out on the farm. You know, we grew up on this cattle farm, and from the time I was five or six, you know, I was the farmhand. Uh, my mother was able to go home, thankfully for her. So, you know, all the time, you know, he just, you know, would be in the woods, and it might be raining, and, you know, a helicopter would fly over, and he'd talk about reminding him from Vietnam. So I had— What I was had the experience for him— uh, because that, you know, my, I'm older than you are, my, you know, and I was not old enough to be in that uh, generation per se, but uh, I was old enough to know how, uh, you know, how difficult the experience was and difficult for veterans when they came back. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was tough fighting. Uh, so he was in Vietnam from the summer of 69 to the summer of 70. Um, and, you know, Nixon had campaigned in 1968 in part on bringing the Vietnam War to an end. Um, so I think some people thought the fighting would wind down quickly uh, as opposed to becoming more intense. And he was out in the jungle for, you know, at least half of the time he was in Vietnam. And sometimes he was out walking point for the infantry squad. Uh, so it was tough fighting. I mean, it's tougher, I'd say, than what I personally faced in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, most most veterans look back on the previous war and think, you know, we've got it bad now, but at least we didn't have it like that, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Those guys in Vietnam said the same thing about Korea, said the same thing about World War II, but it was tough fighting. He didn't, uh, you know, when I was growing up, he didn't uh, glorify, you know, combat. You know, he didn't spend a lot of time reminiscing about his time in the Army. Um, but when when timing was appropriate, he would you know, bring up lessons or memories from it. Like I said, you know, being in the wood line when it's rainy uh, and you can smell the foliage and helicopters coming over, I'm sure that would bring back a memory of Vietnam. Or, you know, when we're getting ready to go out, you know, to deer camp, you know, you look go into the living room and everything is laid out on the floor, you know, in a dress-right-dress dress fashion. You know, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but that was a skill that he learned in the Army, and he'd point out, like, how you learn these things in the Army and so forth. Now, he later said when I joined the Army, which he very much opposed, that he felt like God was punishing him for what he had done to his father in 1968. <laughs> Why did he oppose it? Just thought, you know, I'd gone to Harvard and Harvard Law School and got this fancy education, you know, what he had wanted me and my sister to always do, uh, not necessarily be a lawyer, but go on, you know, to get a good degree and become, you know, uh, professionals who could work in office and air conditioning the way so many people don't have the good fortune to do so, uh, especially in rural Arkansas. And then I was going to give all that up uh, to go be an infantryman. Uh, and in particular in 2004, um, you know, that was a time when Wasn't going uh, well. the war was spiraling out of control and continued for a couple more years. Uh, you know, it was when Pat Tillman was killed, someone else who had left a, a pretty good job uh, to go fight on the front lines. Uh, so in, in addition to what he thought I was leaving behind in my professional life, he was obviously uh, very concerned, as was my mother, about the safety of their son, as any parent would be. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Senator Tom Cotton. Talk to me about your experience uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, and, and uh, what you learned from that. Well, I was very fortunate in the Army that I, I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. Um, you know, on 
on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I was in law school, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and that day pretty changed my plans dramatically, obviously. I, I completed school and practiced for a couple of years to pay off my loans, um, but then I joined, and I, I joined to be uh, an infantry officer uh, and lead platoon uh, in combat, and that's what I got to do within, you know, barely a year and a half uh, of being in the Army. A lot of people join to do those things, and they don't have that opportunity. Um, and I did. And it was, you know, very, it was a very, I mean, a har- hardest job you could have, you know, leading 40 men in combat, you know, when there's bad guys all around you trying to kill you and try to kill your men, but rewarding um, and inspiring and um, just, in, you know, incredibly great privilege to be able to fight for a free country alongside, you know, did free you, citizens. Did you, uh, did all 40 come back? In my platoon, they did. Um, not in my company or battalion, unfortunately. In my platoon, though, we came back and didn't have didn't have any serious wounds while I was there. Um, you know, by the time I was there in two thousand six, uh, the, the enemy had developed uh, tactics and techniques and procedures in fighting to uh, that usually meant you weren't going to have protracted battles. Like you know, there was, I mean, anytime you're in a firefight, it seems very protracted. Um, but uh, the kind of you know hours long. Uh, battles that you might have seen set uh, combat outpost Keating that Clint Romache won the um, Medal of Honor for mm-hmm. um, and that he has a new book about uh, was pretty rare in Baghdad at the time. The enemy knew that because of our superior firepower and um, mobility that they couldn't stand and fight us. So the most common kind of enemy technique was roadside bombs, uh, IEDs, or sniper fire. Um, so we certainly got exposed to our share of that. Um, but fortunately, you know, through good training and discipline and good equipment, we everybody came home alive. Let me ask you this: as a uh, a student of foreign policy, and uh, uh, less than as a someone who participated uh, <clears throat> in the in the war, the decision to go to Iraq um, is a highly debated uh, matter. And uh, looking back. And based on what you know now, do you do you think it was the right thing to do? I think that's a hard question to ever answer. I mean, looking back on what I know now, I definitely would have sent the Pacific Fleet out of Pearl Harbor on December six. I mean, you just you don't get to live history in reverse. Right. Um, so you, you've got to take the measure of, of decisions of statesmen at the time they act and on the information on which they act. Um, and I, yeah, I'm not asking in yeah. a condemnatory way, but I, I'm trying to draw some lessons from. No, that. I, I think um, there are certainly lessons to be drawn, both from the decision to go to war and especially the way the war was waged. But I think, given where we were uh, in late 2002 and early 2003, uh, the attack that we had faced, what not only our intelligence services but pretty much every Western intelligence service believed, uh, I think George Bush made the responsible decision. Um, now, one lesson we should draw from that is to be more skeptical and probing about uh, intelligence, especially when you're uh, making a decision to go to war in part on that intelligence. And then certainly there are lessons to be drawn about the way the war is conducted in the first three years. But I think looking back, looking back on it, given what was known at the time, uh, that George Bush made the responsible decision. The you know, one big debate that's you know, we, we're still there, obviously, um, one, and one of the reasons is that it is very difficult to, uh, in a place that doesn't have democratic institutions, uh, to install them when there are other uh, deeply rooted uh, rivalries, uh, ethnic divisions, uh, religious divisions, and so on. Um, w- is that a lesson to be drawn from this, that we should be 
a, a little more humble in our aspirations about what we can do if the parties on the ground are not uh, are not willing to do it. We we should be uh, modest and tempered about our ability to remake the world in all cases. Um, that's certainly something that I learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can look at our own history uh, or Great Britain's history. I mean, to get to where we were today took many centuries of democratic development um, and the idea that countries that have been governed by tyranny or have descended into anarchy for decades or centuries are all of a sudden going to have Jeffersonian democracies um, is something that you should view with an appropriate degree of skepticism. So, that's, one, that's one reason why, even though I wasn't in public office at the time, um, I did not support the um, airstrikes in Libya in 2011 because it was pretty clear to me that there was um, – no planning whatsoever for any kind of follow-on stabilization operation, nor that we were in the kind of dire straits, uh, given the threats that we faced in 2003 from Iraq, as uh, as that we were in 2011 in Libya. And that's another place that lives on. You know, there, there's a long after-party going on in Libya right now that the United States, and especially Europe, is still dealing with. And that's just – it's a society that's never had democratic governance. It's never had pluralism. Uh, it's still deeply tribal um, in the way a lot of those countries in that region of the world are. Yeah, I mean it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, thing to wrestle with because the choice would have been to uh, allow Gaddafi to to march on and probably uh, see a genocide uh, that followed versus the question that I think is the hardest in foreign policy and national security, which is okay if we do this, what next? What happens next? It's, you know, we yeah. have the greatest military in the world. We can roll over anyone. And this is part of what we're dealing with in Iraq and Syria now. The question is, then what? What's left behind? Is there is there governance? Are we mired there, uh, you know, without limit forever? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, you know, David Petraeus, when he took over, said that it was a, a very going to be a very hard task, but, you know, hard is not impossible. And I, I agree with that as well. Uh, and we made a lot of gains in Iraq uh, in the years after I left, after the surge. I was, I came back to the United States from Iraq just a few weeks before George Bush uh, lost the 2006 elections and then uh, dumped the recommendations of the Iraq study group, which I was I, I strongly opposed, but I was also surprised that he was he would strike on his own. I think in, in retrospect, we'll look back and say that was his finest hour. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't – when President Obama withdrew all troops in 2011, it was not a Jeffersonian democracy. Was it stable? Was it largely representative? Did it largely have a monopoly on force? Yes. But it was not a Jeffersonian democracy the way the United States or Great Britain is. And uh, it's probably going to be a long time uh, before a lot of countries around the world achieve that level of political development. And we have to, um, you know, have our eyes open about that. Um, and part, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the main uh, arguments against um, going on the kind of Wilsonian nation-building effort is the very plethora of opportunities you have to do so all around the world right and and because of the difficulties that you mention uh you also you may well be committing the u.s to a a unlimited engagement and there's a limit you must hear it from your own constituents certainly uh president trump talked to uh, spoke to this during his campaign there's a limit to people's uh patience in terms of uh, the loss of, particularly the loss of life, but also the loss of resources that that these engagements require. And in a democracy in particular, statesmen have to be attuned to uh, durable 
political support for any foreign policy. Um, we're living in a time now, and I don't mean 2017, I mean the last 26, 27 years, um, in which our statesmen have struggled to do something that they've never done before uh, in over 200 years of our history, which is to develop a peacetime strategy uh, for global leadership. You know, we've never had to do that before. Um, in the founding era and in the Monroe system, which really lasted from the Monroe Doctrine up to World War One, we were able to, uh, you know, coast in Great Britain's wake. Um, and then we did not have a successful strategy, to say the least, during the interwar period. And then after World War II, um, you know, we were able to develop a strategy for global leadership, but in a period of very heightened tensions, a Cold War that often termed hot. So since that, that ended, you know, we've asked our statesmen to do something um, that I would say they haven't done the best job of achieving through multiple presidencies. The, uh, in that, I, I want to return to your story because uh, going from uh, going from the service to Serving in Congress is an interesting leap as well, and many are making it now. Uh, but uh, I want to ask you about this, since you raised it, this post-war period uh, and the global institutions that arose as a result of it, one of which being NATO. Um, you know that there's this debate going back and forth as to what the role of NATO should be and the U.S.'s support for it. There was some there was some doubt left in the wake of uh, President Trump's visit to Europe about it. Uh, what's your sense of the importance of NATO and uh, the U.S.'s responsibility to stand up for it and Article 5 of NATO, which means we defend NATO members against uh, attack? NATO uh, is a security alliance. It's not a charitable organization. Uh, we don't belong to it because of humanitarian impulses. We belong to it because it's in our interest. Uh, part of our interest is to ensure that there's no single power that dominates the European continent and can use that dominance to threaten our position in the world. That's why we founded NATO. That's why Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis recently said if NATO didn't exist, we'd have to create something like it. Um, I disagreed with some of the things that President Trump said in the campaign about NATO. Uh, some of the things, though, are very consistent with what he's with what President Obama and President Bush and John McCain and other long-serving statesmen have said about in terms the, of encouraging the need for to yeah for to contribute um, to our common defense. You know, in the Cold War, it was fifty-fifty Europe versus North America. Now it's about seventy-thirty. Uh, the other way. Um, so that's over $100 billion a year that's not being invested in our common defense. You know, that's we should 10 be, aircraft carriers we, a year. We should be clear by by contributing. Uh, it is a matter of contributing to their own defense yeah. in, investments. And as, as Jim not, Mattis not said. A, not, it's not as if everybody's throwing money in the no. pot. And no, so contributing. And I, I think that's misunderstood. Yeah, contribu contributing to their own defense. You know, that it was a political commitment. You know, a little over a decade ago, to say we're going to contribute two percent of our annual economic wealth to our common defense. Um, and a lot of those, uh, uh, even though it's investment in your own national systems or soldiers, are specifically designed to be interoperable to face the challenges that we do from Russia or uh, from um, terrorism or so forth. Um, I mean, we want them to contribute the right way, not the grease way, <laughs> by shrinking the denominator so their defense spend uh, gets up to 2%. But there, it does have real consequences in our ability to project power. I mean, if you look in Libya, I mean, this was something where Europe led on the effort, but the United States had to provide much of the material support. Or France's foray into Mali in 2013, uh, one of their old colonies where they still have deep ties uh, and Islamic terrorism had spread, uh, I think, 
they probably took the right action, but very quickly we had to provide them strategic airlift and refueling capabilities because so many European countries have taken a holiday from history over the last 25 years. So some of the things that the president said in the campaign were very much in keeping with both parties' views of NATO for the last 25 years. Some of the things, like his questioning of Article 5 in the campaign, I disagreed with. At this point, though, I don't think the president and the vice president and his cabinet can do much more to reassure our European allies uh, that we stand by our commitments. At, at a certain point, our European allies just are going to have to accept that Donald Trump is the president. Wouldn't it be easy to go and uh, face them as he just did and just uh, assert it in unambiguous terms? I mean, that's what I heard from his speech last week. Um, I think our European allies are on guard to hear whatever possible slight they can. Um, I mean, because I think a lot of them just don't like Donald Trump. That's understandable. Leaders often don't like each other. I'm sure you could tell us some stories about Barack Obama not getting along well with foreign leaders. George Bush didn't get along well with foreign leaders. Our alliance is not built on on national leaders, though. Our alliance is built on our peoples and our strategic situation. Um, And you can work through, you know, George Bush and Jacques Chirac, for instance, famously did not have the best personal relationship yeah. but they but they had advisors and ministers who could work together to make sure that whatever personal antipathy they might have the u.s france relationship remained the same um at a, again at a certain point yeah, these European it, it, leaders, it, it is tr- it is true that presidents don't get along with <laughs> leaders it's not always true the presidents that don't get along with whole continents or you know th- this seems a little more perfa- but pervasive but i know but i mean look at what you know, Barack Obama, when he traveled to Berlin in the summer of 2008, how many people turned out for him? Uh, I was there. 250,000, yeah. 250,000. I mean, he, his, his manner, his style, his rhetoric, everything about him is more appealing to the European mind than Donald Trump. Almost everything about Donald Trump is just not appealing to the European mind. Well, that, I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't have a strong relationship. That doesn't mean that we uh, that our NATO alliance is strained. It does mean that they're going to have to find a ways to work with the person that American people elected to be their president. There's, you know, or work around them. Uh, well, you, I mean, ultimately, he's the president. He's the one I that represents. But, but as you know, you saw Chancellor Merkel say, we're going to have to do – we can't rely on – Well, mean, she should take more responsibility for Germany and their common defense, and she should take more responsibility for some of the problems that Europe has that have been driven in part by German policy over the last 10 or 12 is years. It, is it in the U.S. interest, though, if other countries say, you know what, we're going to work around the U.S.? We'll 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 do it ourselves. Is that good for the for the United States? No, and, it seems and to ultimately, me the United States has played a real organizing role since World War II. That has been constructive for the world. Um, that's right, uh, and uh, ultimately, they don't have all that much choice but to work with us uh, because of our economic might and especially our military might. I mean, the next day after Chancellor Merkel said that, she kind of walked it back as well. I mean. Maybe she was reminded how many tanks she has versus how many tanks the United States has. Um, but um, you see over the last 10 years, I, I think, you know, um, too little focus on Europe by American presidents. Um, and you see that, you know, we Europe has struggled a lot over 10 years, in part because as the United States looked to the Middle East, uh, especially under George Bush, and then looked to East Asia under Barack Obama, there wasn't that strong guiding hand in European politics to address some very real challenges that the that Europe faces, especially in its uh, multilateral institutions like the European Union and, and the Euro. Um, so I think it's it'd be better uh, if we continue to play that organizing role. But some of these European leaders are going to have to get over their personal differences or differences in style and manner with our president. One of the ways in which uh, 
the administ- the last administration, I think the previous administration probably started, uh, tried to strengthen Europe in the ways you suggest was to uh, negotiate a transatlantic trade uh, agreement. That's an area where it seems to me you and the president haven't always uh, been on the same page. What is the what what are, what is the wisdom of a trans Pacific partnership? A uh, 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 a uh, Trade so on, on, both, your- on both of those, but in particular uh, the European one, since most of our country is at, or especially in Western Europe, at similar levels of development, um, I think the the sentiment that the president rightly tapped, that was also tapped in the Brexit campaign last year, was the move away from traditional trade deals, you know, that lowered tariffs and quotas um, or subsidy systems or so forth. And into what you might call, you know, regulatory harmonization schemes. Um, you know, if you're a voter in Great Britain, uh, it's understandable if you're going to reduce tariffs uh, with countries uh, around the world. What's less understandable is why, you know, unelected bureaucrats in Brussels get to dictate the size of your olive oil decanter on your table. To use one example that was common in the Brexit vote, um, I think that's a sentiment the president tapped into. It's also part of the sentiment that you Hillary think, Clinton. You think was Britain to. will uh, gain economically from the Brexit I think decision? All, as Theresa May has said, ultimately it'll be in Britain's long-term interest, uh, and it'll make Britain more globally minded uh, and stronger to be able to uh, control chart their own course uh, in foreign affairs in the world as they did for so long. Um, you mentioned Russia, and I mean, and like I said, you know, the EU has serious problems um, if you look at the divisions between North and South by which I mostly mean between Germany and the South uh, and between East and West. Uh, so Great Britain may, in retrospect, be seen to have gotten out while the getting was good. You're, uh, you mentioned Russia earlier. Uh, what is your view of Russia relative to Europe, relative to the United States? How Russia, would you characterize Russia? Russia is an adversary. It always has been. Unfortunately, it's always apt to be. And... and uh, you you're on the Senate Intelligence Committee, so you're privy to um, an oxymoron, uh, like yes. military intelligence. Yeah, you know, George Bush had a, a a great joke at the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner some years ago, where he said, I, "Look, I know some people don't think I'm that smart. Even my own staff, I think, I suspect that's true of them too, because every day they put this intelligence briefing on my <laughs> schedule." So, but uh, what uh, what was what? You accept the fact that Russia did inter- interfere in our or tried to interfere in our election last year. I have year. no reason to doubt the conclusions of the intelligence community on that. And <clears throat> so it's not a hoax. I have no reason to doubt the conclusion that it was Russian intelligence services or affiliated persons and organizations who hacked into the DNC and John Podesta's emails and released them. On the actually, as we speak this morning, you know, Putin said, "Well, maybe it was a patriotic Russian." You know, he- Vladimir, Vladimir Putin was a KGB officer, once a KGB officer, always a KGB officer. And remember that Russian intelligence services in particular, um, more so than even most intelligence services, have longstanding patterns going back to the Soviet Union days and the, the czarist days of disinformation, deception, manipulation. <clears throat> also of co-opting uh, people who they think might be helpful to them. Do you think some of that was going on as well? I've seen no evidence of that. Um, and, you know, I, obviously the Intelligence Committee has a review underway um, and we'll follow the facts wherever they lead us. You know, we've done a lot of work already. We've done a lot of interviews. We have more coming. Um, but Diane Feinstein is the senior, was the senior Democrat on the committee until January 
She's been the senior committee, the senior Democrat on the Judiciary Committee uh, for the last five months, meaning that she oversees the FBI. And she said twice in the last month that she's seen no evidence of collusion or wrongdoing by Donald Trump or his associates. Do you believe that the Russians were trying, uh, not not whether it was to help Trump or hurt Hillary Clinton, that they were taking sides in the election? Well, the so the intelligence community assessment uh, didn't just identify uh, Russian intelligence services or their affiliates uh, as the ones who hacked those emails and released them. They also gave some reasons for it. Um, those reasons include a general effort to discredit Western democracy and American democracy in particular, uh, an effort to pay back Hillary Clinton for some of the things she had said and done during her tenure as Secretary Putin of State. Who felt that, 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 that Americans had in, uh, interfered in his election? And, and Hillary Clinton in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and he felt slighted by Bill Clinton in the final uh, months of the Clinton administration as well in 1999 and 2000. Um, the third one uh, was uh, a clear preference for Donald Trump. It's possible. I'm still reviewing the evidence, as is every other member of the intelligence community or intelligence committee as part of our review. And it's hard to disentangle those two motives, you know, helping Donald Trump versus hurting Hillary Clinton in our election system when it's a first-past-the-post election. You do one, you necessarily tend to do the other. Um, But I think there's sound reasons to think that someone in the Kremlin wouldn't want to elect Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump in the campaign, after all, was the one who was advocating more defense spending, accelerated nuclear modernization, expanded ballistic missile defense, more oil and gas production. Those are things that objectively are not in Russia's interest. So I want to, I want to talk to the analysts in the intelligence community who made those conclusions to see the basis on which they made them, uh, both in the kind of, in the, raw intelligence that we've already reviewed, but also a lot of the basic correlation of forces between our two countries. We, we, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't note that he, he, uh, Donald Trump had some shockingly positive things to say about Vladimir Putin during the campaign, and he didn't say much nice about any other international leader. So that is one more. Well, he said, he said things about Vladimir Putin that he ought not to have said and with which I don't agree. Uh, but Vladimir Putin, as an old KGB officer, knows to look beyond what, just what people say and to look what they do. And I'd say if you look at the first four months of the Trump administration, it's hard to say that Russia policy has done anything but gotten tougher. I mean, look at the airstrikes into Syria or what we're doing against Iran, uh, one of Russia's main allies in the Middle East. Sanctions have not been lifted. Um, Rex Tillerson and Jim Mattis and Nikki Haley have all said that we're going to stand with Ukraine until not just the Donbass is returned to Ukraine, but until Crimea is returned to them, uh, which puts them, you know, on a more hawkish ground than does most. Than the president. Well, I mean, he hasn't said that specifically, but he hasn't said the opposite either. But a lot of European leaders, if you talk to them, have basically given up on Crimea ever going back uh, to Ukraine. They think that's a special and different case from the Donbass. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it's it's hard to say that in the first four months of uh, Donald Trump's administration. Russia policy has done anything then gotten tougher. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, Senator Tom Cotton. When you uh, when you heard that Jared Kushner had met with uh, Ambassador Kislyak, who is identified as a kind of key Russian spy master here in the U.S., and then with a Russian banker whose bank was sanctioned by the U.S. government because of the invasion of uh, Crimea, a banker who has close ties to Vladimir Putin. And this all happened in the transition. And uh, 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 reportedly, uh, Jared Kushner asked for a 
a, a back channel that would be managed by the Russians, not by uh, that would be out of the out of the uh, reach of American intelligence and so on. What what did that say to you? Well. Let me say first, as a general matter, uh, there's nothing inappropriate uh, about members of a transition meeting with representatives of a foreign government. Um, I'm sure that you saw that happening in the transition in 2008 and 2009. Every ambassador and foreign minister probably wanted to make a trip to Chicago and come meet with Barack Obama or uh, with Hillary Clinton or That's with right, the National the, Security Advisor or with you or anyone else. I mean, you, but we, given, we have to remember. But, but, but I doubt that – I can't think of another example where a designee of a incoming president met with sanctioned – the leaders of sanctioned institutions and asked for a back channel uh, uh, for communication. Didn't President Obama send Bill Miller to meet with Iranian leaders in 2008? Not, uh, not uh, in a surreptitious way. Well, the point being that it's completely normal um, for foreign leaders to be communicating, not just with president-elects and their teams, but with nominees. You probably saw this in 2008 in the middle of the campaign. There's a reason why all those ambassadors go to the RNC and the DNC. Uh, and it's not to hear the great rhetoric. It's to build relationships with one of the two sets of people who are going to be leading our government. And, and yeah, it's, well, it's I'm hard not to talk about the ambassador so much as uh, do you consider it uh, customary for uh, representatives to meet with someone like Mr. Gorkov uh, from Venish Economic? Uh, it, so it's not unusual, um, and especially in, in countries where personal relationships matter a lot uh, for them to send those kind of personal emissaries. I've had some of those uh, people who are, you know, they're not the foreign minister, they're not ambassador, come to meet me shortly after the election, usually from allied countries, uh, because they were looking for contacts inside Donald Trump's world because they didn't think he was going to win, they didn't develop those contacts. So that's not uncommon because, again, you have to remember something that it's easy for Americans to forget, even for Americans in Washington, in government, to forget um, – we are the most important country in the world to every country in the world. Like the diplomat that represents every country in the world that serves in Washington is the most skilled, experienced, important diplomat they have. Um, our ambassador in their capital is the most important ambassador in their capital. Um, so, And for many of these countries, their existence depends on their relationship with the United States, which is to say in no small part their relationship with the incoming president and his administration. So the meetings that Jared Kushner or Mike Flynn um, or any other member of the administration had are not out of the ordinary. Now, I, I can't say what happened in those meetings. And, you know, well, Jared, we know some, no, some of it hasn't been denied. I Jared, mean, the, Jared Kushner has said that he wants to cooperate with the Senate Intelligence Committee and he's willing to turn over documents and interview, and I, I think we should do that, and he should tell his side of the story. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't evaluate what was said in conversations in private meetings or on phone calls or what have you, um, but I can say that there's nothing out of the ordinary for foreign leaders to want to meet with an incoming administration. The uh, And you consider uh, Mr. Gorkov from Venetia Kanabank a foreign leader? I don't know all the details about him. Um, I do know. I mean, that's kind of like the export-import bank uh, in the United States. But he also has, a, I mean, the way most people who are in positions of influence do, has a personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. So it's not surprising that heads of states and people with personal relationships to meet with the incoming advisors to the president. I mean, I'm sure you saw that some as well. He said that he was uh, there to talk about business, and he was talking to Kushner in his role as 
uh, a leader of, of of the Kushner organization, which he was. Well, I'm not uh, sure. I'd, I'm time. not sure. I'd I'd, I'd credit uh, everything that Mr. Gorkov says. Uh, no. Not saying I discredit it, just saying that I, I recognize that as someone who's close to Vladimir Putin and who himself went through the Russian security service training, uh, I wouldn't credit everything he says in the news. Um, how do you think that this has been handled by the administration and the president, who is a frequent tweeter on this subject? Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't I, agree with your I, analysis. I think the pre- I think the president uh, of what happened last I, year. I think the president could be more focused uh, and disciplined about staying on his agenda. And I've communicated that publicly. Uh, as well as privately to him. Um, I mean, he won in the campaign um, because of his agenda, uh, and he's going to succeed in office because of his agenda. I mean, it reminds me of what you said about the kickoff for Barack Obama's reelection campaign in your book. You know, there's some meeting, and he comes in with this yellow legal pad, and he's got a long list of issues like climate change and gay rights and immigration uh, that he wants to address. And you had to tell him, like, Mr. President, I'm sure we all agree around this table, but we're still at 8% unemployment uh, and you're down so many million jobs. You got elected to deliver on the economy and kitchen table issues. You're probably going to get reelected by focusing on those as well. And as you said, he had gotten somewhat rusty and he'd gotten off focus on those. He got back on focus, and that's one main reason he won reelection. Donald Trump is going to do well if he's focused on things like jobs, wages, and security uh, to the extent that he's focused on all of the, you know, hair on fire, wild-eyed allegations and drama around these inquiries, he's going to do less well. Can he? I mean, in your view? He showed in the campaign that he can be disciplined and focused, absolutely. In um, spurts? <laughs> well, uh, enough spurts to win. Uh, and, again, if he's disciplined and focused like he was on his overseas trips, especially in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and Israel, he's going to do well. That's not something specific to Donald Trump. It's kind of a lesson of life, a lesson of the military, a lesson of politics. I mean, being disciplined is a pretty important skill to have. You didn't. You there were twenty senators who sent a letter to the president recommending that he withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. You weren't one of those twenty. I presume you were solicited for your signature. Uh, why didn't you put your name on that letter? There the, are a lot of cross-cutting issues that the president and his team needed to address beyond just the. Uh, terms of the climate agreement, uh, and I wanted to give the president and his team the space to address those. Um, I, I think ultimately he probably made the right decision. Um, you know, the left's complaints in the last couple of days can't be reconciled. On the one hand, it can't be a voluntary, non-binding commitment. Uh, on the other hand, the last chance for salvation on earth. Um, it's clear that the Democratic Party and the left wanted it to become essentially binding, essentially binding through moral and political pressure each year as we weren't able to hit the targets that President Obama had laid out that were much tougher than any other country's targets and potentially legally binding through lawsuits under the Clean Air Act. And I think for those reasons, uh, he made the right decision. Uh, He also stressed that we're going to continue to lead the world in environmental protection. But because of the cross-cutting issues that were outside the climate space as well, I wanted to give the president and his team the space they needed to make that decision. But it's just the left that's been – uh, unhappy about that decision, critical of that decision. It's 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 most of the world's uh, leaders. Well, it's most, many most many world, many many leaders business talk. leaders here in the U.S. who uh, feel that it, it will have uh, deleterious effects uh, and not positive effects on the economy. I'm skeptical of that. I mean, I heard these complaints after we withdrew about how we're going to no longer become the world leader in solar power. I mean, that's the the Paris Accord simply didn't 
uh, address that. I mean, if we're going to be the world leader in solar power, which I suspect we probably will, it's because we make a better product at a more affordable price. Um, you know, it doesn't, you know, if you're making solar panels yesterday for your job, you're still making them today and your job is still going to rise or fall based on your company's ability to make a better solar panel and sell it. Not whether or not, we're, not whether or not the United States is in a non-binding voluntary agreement. You're in a, uh, you're on the, uh, panel that Mitch McConnell assembled on health care to, uh, to uh, try and come up with a repeal and replace bill that can pass the Congress. Um, how are you doing? How's that coming along? It's deliberative. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a movable feast, you might say. Um, you know, there's lots of people. It looks like a movable famine. Out. I don't know. Well, lots of people coming in and out. I mean, we've probably had half of the Senate Republican caucus now in and out of the meetings. Some, some senators care more about certain issues on health care, so they're, they're more apt to be there when the conversation turns to Medicaid or the insurance regulations and so forth. Um, look, Mitch McConnell has said it's going to be a tricky uh, uh Proposition. We've only. Got I mean, he actually cast doubt on whether you can get to the. Yeah, he said that he didn't have you... he didn't have the votes now, and he doesn't know how we're going to get to the votes now. That's usually the case in a legislature. Uh, I'm very much focused on doing so. I thought the House had a false start that set them back uh, a few yards and delayed the effort. You uh, made it said an interesting thing. You recommended to House members that they not vote for the bill because you said they'd be walking the plank and uh, in legislative parlance that means they'd be voting for a bill that's never going to become law uh did they make a mistake no because they ultimately did what i had counseled them to do from the outset you know the house leadership introduced a bill on monday night and they were going to start voting on it on wednesday and i said they really need to hit pause take the time to assess all of its uh implications because healthcare is a very complicated area of law um and not rush through a product that was half-baked um, now, there was a lot of drama uh, for two or three weeks there. They ultimately had to pull that bill off of the floor. Congress went into recess. Deliberations continued. In the end, uh, they spent about you know eight or nine weeks on it. And that's, in my opinion, what they should have done from the very beginning. Um, the House bill is a start. The Senate will write our own bill. We'll see if we can get 50 votes to pass it. I hope we can, and I hope it improves our health care system. You, uh, Arkansas has been a big beneficiary of the Affordable Care Act. Your uninsured rate has gone from 21% down, I think, to 8 or 9%. Second best performance of any of the states. I think Kentucky is the only one that did better. Do you have concerns about uh, going backward in terms of uh, insurance in your state? Well, I, I want everyone in Arkansas, like every American, to have the chance to get affordable and quality insurance. We know that some people are not if we do something like repeal the individual mandate. That doesn't mean they, quote, unquote, lose their insurance so much as some of them will choose not to buy their insurance. But if you want insurance and you want to buy it, I want it to be affordable and I want it to fit the needs of that person. One way that we can do that, and our governor in Arkansas stresses this, is by giving states a lot more flexibility and authority over their own Medicaid systems and then holding them to account as well, not letting them spend excessively the way some states have done. Um, That doesn't mean that everybody who's on Medicaid today will stay on Medicaid in the long run. I think it's better that we move people off of Medicaid and into market-based insurance, whether that's the individual market. That's what you got. In in Arkansas, they got a waiver from the Obama administration to use the uh, Medicaid money to buy into the health care. So so essentially, if you're – so we still have the traditional Medicaid program, which supports the traditional Medicaid populations, um, which no one disputes uh, need that kind of support, the indigent elderly, the disabled, the blind, and so forth. Very important – programs to help people have, say, 
developmental disabilities um, who are living in you know uh, open homes. Uh, the expansion population, which oftentimes are able-bodied adults, um, they are not in that traditional Medicaid fee-for-service program. So the waiver that Arkansas got was to use that pot of money for the expansion population to put that group of people on the insurance market itself. Now, we just modified it to some degree. I say we, the governor and the legislature of the state of Arkansas, and that moved about 70,000 people off of Medicaid and into market insurance. Well, they'll, they'll have... Uh, you know, different options and, you know, they'll have a copay and so forth. That's the kind of flexibility that we should give to my governor and to every other state as well. The, uh, some of these plans of the president's budget, uh, for example, uh, uh, foresees a, a cut in Medicaid, it's over $800 billion. Isn't a state like Arkansas well, going to suffer from? I'd say that's a Washington cut. You know, Medicaid spending still cut goes the growth up every of, year. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's real evidence that Medicaid spending. So does, so does the cost of health care. So. Well, uh, but Medicaid spending on a per beneficiary basis has been not just below the uh, rate of medical inflation. It's been the re- below the rate of core inflation for many years. Uh, we think that if we give governors and legislatures more flexibility so they're, they'll have more tools than just cutting payments to doctors, that we can even see uh, uh, higher quality care delivered at a better price for Medicaid beneficiaries. I mean, that's one of the core um, uh, goals that we have of health care reform is to give governors more flexibility on Medicaid, give them more tools like managed care, for instance, that is very common in, in the private insurance market to restrain the rate of growth in Medicaid, but also continue to deliver affordable care. I don't ask this uh, to be uh, pro- provocative, but I'm, I'm really curious about it. It's an interesting point you raised that Medicaid uh, has uh, been below uh, the rate of medical inflation. and uh, I mean, it's a government-run program. Uh, why is that? I think the main reason is that it's such a huge part of most state government's budget, you know, along with uh, K-12, through higher education, and prisons. But you're, you're suggesting it's managed uh, better. No. I, so the, the common complaint you'll hear from Medicaid about people who are both on Medicaid uh, and from doctors is that it's insurance that doesn't necessarily equal care. Um, a lot of doctors across Arkansas will not take a new Medicaid patient or they'll take one new Medicaid patient a month. And that's in part because one of the few tools that governors have is to reduce rates of reimbursement for doctors. And it gets to a point where it's simply not economically feasible for a doctor or other healthcare provider to continue seeing, uh, an open-ended number of Medicaid enrollees. I think there's better ways to try to restrain the rate of growth of, of Medicaid without getting people into the situation where they have insurance but they don't have care. Um, you know, giving the governor's flexibility to have a small copay, for instance, or a small deductible, giving them the flexibility to have managed care, giving them the flexibility to use telemedicine. Those are all uh, things that governors don't currently do that are being done uh, in the private insurance markets, and I think we should let them do that. We should see what works. Last, uh, lastly, your own future. Um, do you? First of all, I, I assume you 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 see Donald Trump being the candidate for president in two thousand and twenty. Most people, once they get elected to president, like during the job. So I expect Donald Trump will be not clear that he does. That's why I, that's why I ask you. But uh, if he were not, would is that something that you see in your I'll future? Be, I'm preparing to run for re-election in 2020, and I suspect that Donald Trump will be our party's nominee in 2020 as well. I uh, I knew you were too cagey to let me inveigle you into some other answer, but I thought I'd give it a try. Senator Tom Cotton, thank you so much. Uh, for being here and look forward to uh, 
uh, future conversations. Thank you, David. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.